Thank you for having me today as the substitute speaker. The regular Malcolm Cox is speaking in London and uh, the North region. And you're in a series on couples in the Bible, although not all of them are actually couples. I noticed in the series, some of them weren't even married to each other. They just happened to work together. But I asked, is there a, a twosome that you've not covered yet? He said, well, yeah, we used to have uh, Boaz and Ruth uh, on the list, but it's not done, so can you do that? And I thought, absolutely. Now, in the book of Ruth, many scholars would say Naomi is actually the principal character. But that doesn't matter to me because I've been asked to speak on Ruth and Boaz. And this is a totally analog sermon. You need your Bible. <laughs> now, it doesn't have to be an analog Bible, but you will get more out of this if you follow along. The reading is from the beginning of uh, Uh, of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth is still wedged between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. And Limelech, Naomi's husband, died. She left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died. A lot of dying here. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So this is not an uncommon scene in the Bible. There's famine and people relocate, they move, in this case, east to Moab, and then they need to go back. There's been a lot of death. They go west, back into Israel, and you'll see some of the key characters here. We're not going to do a lot of analysis, uh, but... I think enough to make what's a familiar story for most of us uh, refreshed in our minds. Verse 8, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Basically, she's saying, remarry. Then Naomi kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters, to Moab. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Probably not. Return home, my daughters. <coughs> I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And now there's more crying. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And this is where this passage is often quoted in weddings, though it has really nothing to do with weddings, but it's a nice thought here. Um, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. That's our reading. That's the passage. Quite an interesting situation. I would like to summarize briefly what's going on in the four chapters of Ruth. So in chapter one, we have this Moabite mini-migration. They're across, they're in Moab, uh, they come back. That is, Ruth and her sister Orpah are on the way. Orpah actually doesn't go. Uh, She's not as interested in joining the God of Israel. Ruth insists on being with her mother-in-law, staying with her mother-in-law, and that itself is probably worth a sermon, a class, and even a few jokes, but there's a good relationship there. So you have this mini-migration, and you see that Ruth does not take the easy way out. Because Naomi said, well, you can just go back there. It's easier to find a husband. She actually embraces a very difficult decision. If you've never done that, if you've never moved from one country to another country, you may not fully appreciate that except by maybe analogy. Maybe you move from one town to another. In chapter 2, she meets her marriage partner. His name is Boaz of Bethlehem. This is Bethlehem in Judah, the city of David who would be born many generations later. There's another Bethlehem in northern Israel. That's why it's Bethlehem of Judah, so we don't get confused, right? It's like the Cambridge. If you don't say the Cambridge of Massachusetts, you might think you were referring to England. You get the idea, basically. But she meets her marriage partner, and in chapter 3, we have the midnight marriage proposal. She takes advice from Naomi, and she waits till um, the workers have been asleep for a while in the fields. She tiptoes up there. And she does it just right. And culturally, it's very different than what we would do, but it is truly an amazing uh, chapter. So we have the Moabite mini-migration in chapter 1. She meets her marriage partner of the future in chapter 2. We have the midnight marriage proposal. And it is midnight because she waits till Boaz is asleep, and then she disturbs him. And she says, basically, would you marry me? And he explains that because they're connected through her through through her her mother-in-law, Naomi, yes, he can help. He can, in effect, redeem her. That's a very strange concept. Yes, uh, you're having troubles financially. You're looking for a husband. I'll redeem you. I'll buy your dead husband's land and property, and then you'll be thrown in with the deal. I mean, you would never think of it that way. But in much of the world, even today, and in most of the world back then, that's exactly the way it was. So he's going to be able to redeem her. That will have some relevance at the end when we pray for the communion. And then in chapter 4, we have the marriage itself. And there's more. She has a baby. And even though it's her baby, the baby is given to Naomi. Naomi, in a way, is a very key character. And we see in this beautiful book, just of four chapters, how Ruth and Boaz are blessings to each other, but also to the world. Because through them is born David. I checked it out just to confirm in my Hebrew Bible. Yeah, that's the last word of the book. That's David. It ends with a short genealogy. So because through Ruth's baby is born another baby, and then David. David, who everyone's looking forward to, and through whom, as we know, Jesus Christ was born. Ruth is discreet. She's sensible. She takes advice. And she takes advice from her mother-in-law. Just think about that. Um, She follows the God of Israel. 
Boaz also is principled. If you've read the story of Ruth, you know that not all men were as spiritual. Boaz is concerned that even some of his own men might molest Ruth as she's gathering in the fields because she has the permission, she's poor, permission to gather uh, the, some of the sheaves that have not been collected. Uh, Boaz is uh, someone who respects her, unlike some of his workers who simply don't respect women. Sad to say, that's something that is starting to change in the world but has a long, long way to go. Boaz follows the procedures and law. He's well-informed. Read the whole book of Ruth. You'll see this is true. He fears the Lord, and he respects Ruth, he says, for not running after the other men, younger men, whether rich or poor. She's not a gold digger. She's not just looking for financial security. She's not willing to compromise. He also respects her, it says, for her devotion to her mother-in-law, Ruth. Some of us have mothers-in-law. Think about this. And I think that itself speaks volumes of Naomi's faith, that Boaz has such respect for her. Many years ago, when I was in love with my future wife, and we, we were in a dating relationship, and the London church knew it. This was in the 80s, the early 80s. Once I wrote a letter to Vicky, and uh, basically it was an extended meditation on the book of Ruth. And I listed eight qualities of Ruth and how I thought I saw all of them in Vicky. And I actually even signed the letter, you know, love, Boaz. <laughs> well, there was a, the church is very small then, uh, fewer than 200. When we were married, it was only 200. That was uh, summer 85. This must have been sometime in uh, 84. And it was a church banquet, and there was a lot of levity. And a certain church leader, I won't mention his name, managed to confiscate this letter and read it out loud to the whole church. I was turning uh, purple. My wife was turning red. And at the very end, you know, he read, with all my love, Boaz. And everyone broke into laughter. So I'll never forget that. Be careful uh, who you let find your love letters. <laughs> but at that time, I read... This Ruth, the book of Ruth, probably the way many others do. Okay, um, short story. Okay, what's the moral here? Oh, yeah, she's got good character. Boaz is a good character. They're a good match. Oh, some weird stuff there in the middle of the night, but, you know, it's a pretty good story. And we're kind of looking for what's the takeaway? What's the practical? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, we could actually end the message right here today. But what would we have missed? Maybe the most important things. So I need you to look at your Bible again. Notice in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. What's the book right before Ruth? Judges. I mean, you can almost look at Ruth as an appendix to Judges. It could be Judges chapters 22 to 25. Or it could be the preface to 1 Samuel, I suppose. Well, what's going on in Judges is well exemplified. If you look in chapter 17, verse 6, crazy things are going on spiritually. 17.6, in those days Israel did, had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. 18.1, in, in those days Israel had no king. 19.1, in those days Israel had no king. And finally in 21.25, the last verse of Judges, this is after a civil war, 
and a weird situation where one tribe is almost totally eliminated and they have to kind of steal brides for the few hundred remaining Benjamites. It's, it's amazing uh, how weird things get when we leave God. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, the, what comes after that, and that's the fourth and final explicit uh, reference to the fact that Israel was struggling spiritually and in terms of leadership. The very next passage we have is here, Ruth, the foreigner. Okay, well, what else is going on? Did you notice in 1-2, the man's name was Elimelech? How many of you speak Hebrew? I bet you some of you know the meaning, even if you don't. Eli is my God. Melech is king, not Malach, that's messenger. Elimelech, God is my king. Okay, no king in Israel, no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, no king. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The point is that we need God to be our king. And actually, not even David, not even the monarchy, which will be instituted in chapter 8 over Samuel's strenuous objections, because that was not God's plan A, to have this top-down hierarchical, monarchical situation. Not at all. But there's more, to be fair. Because Ruth shows up in the New Testament. So I take you to Matthew chapter 1. Hopefully your Bible has a New Testament also. And we have the genealogy of Jesus, which is very surprising for several reasons. One, it's backwards. I mean, normally the genealogy you know, would be uh, going the other time direction. What's also very strange about it is that it mentions women. Because if you look at genealogies in old days and in the Bible, it's men. Why are women in this genealogy? And five of them, in fact, and they all have something in common. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And just look down. You'll see Tamar in verse 3. Ooh. Rahab in verse 5 from the book of Joshua. Ruth is mentioned also in verse 5. Bathsheba is not named, but she's mentioned in the next verse, 6. And of course, in verse 16, you have Mary. Now, what do these have in common? Well, almost all of them are foreigners to start with. You get that. They are women in somewhat hmm, scandalous or interesting positions. I mean, the story of Tamar and Judah in verse 38, uh, chapter 38 of Genesis is kind of stunning, quite, quite shocking. But even though she plays the prostitute, she's actually more consistent and more righteous than Judah in that story. But she's in Jesus' genealogy. We have Rahab. What was her job? Her family lived basically in the wall of Jericho. Her job? Prostitute. She and her family, though, knew that Canaan belonged to the Jews, that the Canaanites should not be there, that they had been rescued from Egypt, and that their God was the true God. And Rahab, she converts to Judaism and her family. Foreigner, also with just a tinge of scandal. We have, who else? Ruth herself. Foreigner. Then we have Bathsheba. She may have been a Hittite, or she may have been Israelite, but definitely her husband is a, a, a Hittite. That's the one David killed 
so he could basically sleep with her and make her his wife. She's in Jesus's genealogy. And then, would you believe it, a woman who claimed that she was pregnant, not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. And the, the scandal was so strong that even Joseph, he was righteous, but Joseph, the father of Jesus, was considering divorcing Mary to protect her, because this is a very serious thing. All five of these women are, are these are not the, like the finest hour, particularly in Israel's history, for the men. The women show up the men by being more spiritual, more consistent, or by being more righteous. In the book of Ruth, who are the heroes? Well, it's Naomi, it's Ruth, it's Boaz. What do we do with this? What does this mean? And why did I just drag you to the New Testament? The New Testament of Jesus Christ begins with a short genealogy, which deliberately includes women, What's God saying? It, it's, the game has changed now. And not just women, but foreigners, and all associated with some kind of scandal. Does that offend you? Does it make you have an attitude? Well, I can't follow a Messiah with that kind of history in his closet. These are worse than skeletons. Skeletettes, whatever they are. I can't follow. God is saying quite clearly here, not just women are important. He's saying foreigners are important. He's saying that God can use anybody. He's dismantling something. He's educating us. Well, how can we possibly make applications of this? Well, yes, of course. In the old way, I suppose you can read Ruth and say, let's be like Ruth, willing to stand out, be in the minority, not take the easy way, uh, be firm, be patient, not give up hope. Those are good points, though I doubt that's the point of Ruth. No, I don't think so. We could say that, look at her. She didn't just insist on her way. She wanted to do it God's way, the right way. And Boaz is the same. They're both patient. They both follow God's word instead of just doing what might be quicker or more convenient. I don't think that's the point of Ruth. She's discreet. She takes counsel. She's respectful, just like Moab. That's great. I mean, you could have a point on, oh, point three, church, be respectful, even to in-laws. I mean, that could be a point. It might be significant in a way, but I doubt very much that's the point of Ruth. What I'm saying is that if we simply read this short story and moralize it, we say, okay, what's the moral? You know, what's the lesson to learn? What should I do and imitate? We may be totally missing, totally missing what's really important. And that is to appreciate what God is doing, what God is doing behind the scenes and often way off on the side in places you would never expect. You see, it's women, not just men. It's a men's world. It's a man's world in most of human history and even today, nearly everywhere, it's a man's world. But in Christ, not so. The foreigner is just as important and often strategically even more significant than the local. And dare I say, groups outside our fellowship, not just groups inside, should be respected and we should ask, what is God doing? I know some don't like that and some rejoice that I said that, but I did say that. 
Yeah, just outside your denomination. It's not like, oh, well, God, he would act, but his hands are tied. You know, because, you know, people are wrong on some things. They can't do anything. You have clearly missed the point of Ruth and of nearly every book of the Old Testament because it's a massive theme that the outsider gets it before the insider, that God's people are shown up or they're bested by the pagans, those who have some excuse not to understand the law. So let's read Ruth and all the scriptures with a thirst for God not just looking for, quote, practicals for some good behavior modification plan, not that. That itself, focusing on what I must change, that itself can become a distraction that takes us away from God, that prevents us from actually seeing his majesty and what he's doing. To see what he's doing, we need to step back a bit further and look at these passages in context. And to understand, Ruth, you've got to know what's going on in Judges as Israel's falling apart spiritually, as they're drifting because God is not their king. Elimelech, that word even reminds us of that twice. And then looking ahead to the New Testament, you see that Ruth, just like uh, Rahab and Tamar, just like Bathsheba and Mary, is loved by God, used by God, despite the whiff of scandal, despite her gender. And that's a point all men need to hear, but I think the women need to hear it as well, because it's a biblical theme. And it's almost the theme that you could say kicks off the New Testament. Well, someone's coming up to pray for communion, I believe. If that's true, please walk up right now while I'm talking. If not, I will pray. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that Boaz it was a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Because of his relationship, with Ruth, it was an in-law kind of relationship because it's from Naomi. He and Naomi are from the same uh, clan. Because of that, he's able to provide a new lease on life for Ruth to basically take up remnants of her old life, that her husband, of course, is dead, but his property. But with the property comes the widow, comes Ruth. And so he's able to give her not just a marriage, but a home and a place, not just respect, not just love, but he's able to breathe new life. He's her redeemer. That theme of redemption is very similar to redemption in Christ, and many, many writers have noted that, that Jesus, in a way, is the Boaz. He's our kinsman. He's our redeemer. We, as God's people, the church, which is always described in a feminine relationship to the groom, Christ is the groom, we're the bride, he's able to redeem us. And so there's something that's very Christ-focused if you read this from the New Testament perspective when you look at Ruth chapter 4. Uh, there's some wonderful things here. I hope you'll take it uh, on board, and now we'll pray for the bread and the wine.